You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I'm Shane. And so today we are picking up where we left off in our discussion about social media addiction. And just as a quick refresher, last time that we were here, we talked about the fact that there is no actual diagnosis called social media addiction, right? Yeah, there's not an official diagnosis, and we're going to kind of lean into that pretty heavily today when we talk about the different features of it. But yeah, it's kind of interesting when people talk about it like it's a real thing. So we did talk instead a lot about some of the features of an addiction, what that means, sort of behaviorally speaking. And we also talked about sort of an informal assessment to determine if you were addicted to social media that really followed the model of addiction, like, is this causing problems in your life? And do you find yourself sneaking off to use the social media sort of thing? (laughs) Yeah. And and from now on, we're going to reference it as the social media. (laughs) And a little bit of discussion around sort of how it works potentially in the brain. We're going to talk about that again here as well as some personality things. But I think if you didn't listen to that one, that one does really set up a lot of the foundation. So I'd recommend that you go back and listen to part one if you haven't. If not, there's still a lot of information to get from this discussion today. So I think it'll be okay. Yeah? Yeah, for sure. I think this is going to cover a little bit different stuff, but I think the part one and part two together obviously make the most sense if you want to get a comprehensive idea of what we're talking about. Cool. All right. So before we jump into that, how you doing, Shane? I'm good, man. How are you? <laughs> Great. Doing okay. Doing okay. Trying to set boundaries with all this stuff going on. Yeah. Like I've learned that I think I'm okay, but I think I, I'm really, it's really easy for me to overwork, you know, while all this is going on. So I'm trying not to do that. That's actually a very fair point because I felt that I was going to have all this free time and ended up filling it immediately with things. Mm-hmm. And so yes. now Shane, this episode comes out in the future long after we have recorded it (laughs) oh right yeah and at the time that that comes out i'm just gonna hope that everything with covid19 has been over for some time yeah yeah or at least on a better path yeah because at the time that we're recording this there is no immediate end in sight (laughs) yes people really struggle with that apparently right now just kind of as a reference point there are places that are, there are active protests that people want to go back to work. So that's a thing. Yeah. And Florida has just as of two days ago, reopened its beaches for some unknown reason. Pass it around more efficiently, I guess. So <sighs> Florida, yeah. we should just do an episode on Florida. Wow. <laughs> do a whole podcast on Florida. <laughs> I don't know that we would cover what we needed to in that space. It would be, we'll launch a side project called Florida dot, dot, dot. why (laughs) yeah florida why why i used to listen to this radio station when i was younger and they would do they would play this game they would call it florida or or germany okay and what was wacky about it was that both places it was you you just couldn't tell so i guess maybe germany there's a germ uh, a germany man or german man oh that that hits the same kind of strides but it's a little it's a little different less alligators yeah <laughs> more clogs more clogs more beer steins <laughs> yes so uh, anyway welcome to our episode on addiction <laughs> part two <laughs> you might find that if you also have been stuck at home during this that your 
use of social media has increased. Let's let's go ahead and actually talk about one of our sources here. So from Forbes, there is a discussion about how the addictive effect of social media actually occurs. And they actually describe this this need for validation and that there are these built-in rewards and kind of incentives in the social media platform where people can like, follow or post emojis and memes and hashtags to the things that you do. And all of that kind of validates that behavior of interacting with social media by doing things like posting your status or posting a photo or even liking someone else's photo or responding to a post or maybe doing one of the hashtag challenges of some kind that exist out there. I don't know how common that is, but I'm thinking there seems to have been a lot of them. One that just was kind of going around was like, can you put a shirt on while you're doing a handstand? Wow. And so that's, so that's, and that's just kind of like the quarantine thing. So like on a normal day, these platforms are designed to have that validation component where it's the likes, the follows, the emojis, the interactions, basically the impressions. Like there's a lot of stuff that goes into the social media piece. And what's really cool about that is that, you know, you can kind of see which aspects of which platform are designed to be those reinforcing things. Even on LinkedIn, which is designed to be a platform for professionals that are supposed to share resources and whatnot. One of the things that I noticed while I was using it the other day was when you interact with a post, like if you like a post or or anything like that, my phone does this. I don't know if everybody's phone does this, but my phone vibrates. Like it's like got this cool little sensation where it's like the minute you hit it, it goes like real quick. Yeah. So even that is like designed to be have some kind of reinforcing property built into that. Yeah, smart. And probably that little vibrating sensation would not have meant anything if it wasn't linked to that outcome of that validation or that reward. And so that becomes part of the experience and can become missed if it is removed or changed in some way. Right. And so we all sort of get used to these little things that happen and those become these sort of learned rewards, if you will, that then can really cement in that pattern of behavior with that type of interaction. According to the source, they also talk about FOMO, of course, and that they reported in 2013 that 67% of users feared that they would miss something that was going on if they weren't using the social media platform. And so that would be another one of those, not only do you get those rewards when you use that platform, but you're explicitly aware of the fact that when you're not using the platform, you're missing out on the potential rewards that you may have gotten had you been using that platform. And you can see how that builds into a cycle really quickly. Yeah. And just as like a, again, just to kind of note, this is on a normal day. Like this isn't, like right now, more people are using social media, more people are posting articles, more people are doing this because we're kind of at home. But on a normal day, they're kind of making the argument that about 67% of people, are having like having this FOMO piece. So that kind of drives the use of, of social media up a little bit. Yeah, great point. So on this point of this whole thing where you get this validation, you get these rewards and you are satisfied, I guess, with the fact that you're not missing out on things that are going on. Every time that you get to interact with this platform where you sort of get to push yourself out there, it sort of gets to build up your ego, if you will. And so you get some amount of recognition or you get some sort of acknowledgement for what you are contributing to those platforms. And that just continues to build the momentum of that behavior in that space, if that makes sense. 
Well, right. And think about it like this too. So like your platform, whatever you are posting, you are in total control of too. So like you get to respond to what you want to, you get to reinforce what you want to, you get to post things that are going to contact more reinforcement than others. This episode is not on thirst traps, but that is something that we could talk about at some point in time, which is like partial nudity and stuff on, ha. <laughs> you know, but that's something to look at is like, you know, there are certain posts that you get to control as part of your platform, as part of your social media presence that contact certain reinforcers and you follow certain people that have certain, re- it's, it's a whole cycle, but yeah, you, it's like a, it's like a monument to you as a person in the digital age, which is really interesting. So let's do one more time. Let's talk about this whole brain chemistry part of this. And then I think we can be probably done with it for this topic for now. Yeah. And so I think I've thought of a way to say this that I think will maybe make the most amount of sense. And that is they always talk about what happens in your brain when you like you do this pleasurable thing and dopamine happens and the pleasure centers of your brain light up, yada, yada, yada. I think the way to really think about this is that we are set up biologically to feel a need for something in some way. And so we call that motivation. And let's think of it that way, right? We're deprived of something or we are alerted to the fact that there is some reward available out there or where some reward is made valuable by something that we're told. So like, for example, if I were to say, there's this new social media thing that is really cool and it's really fast and it's really easy to use and it allows you to do all those new things that other social media platforms can't do. Well, before that platform may have meant nothing to you, even if you had heard of it. And now I just sort of built it up and made it sound valuable. Okay. And so now when you go and use that platform or you do whatever that thing is, because there was that sense of motivation, then you also get the reward of having interacted with that platform in line with the motivation that you had. And so you sort of satisfy that motivation or that urge, if you will, to use it. And so that's the whole like brain chemistry thing. What it is, is, and I'm not talking about like the neurotransmitters or the structure of the brain, because I honestly don't think that that's terribly important to understand beyond. We have the capacity to feel motivated for something and then rewarded for completing on that motivation. And that has to do with how our brains are set up and how our biology is set up that's allowed us to evolve effectively. And it's getting sort of, well, not hijacked, but it's the process of social media and other addiction or addictive platforms really lean heavily into that process. And so without talking about, oh, it gives us a rush of dopamine, that doesn't mean anything because the dopamine doesn't just happen because we did X, Y, or Z. It happens because there's a motivation in place. Right. And that's just the process of what occurs when we engage with those rewarding activities is like the fact they're rewarding is tied to the sensation that we get, which is related to our biology. And it's all mixed together. It's not a cause effect. There you go. I'll take that. So basically, listen to what Abraham just said. (laughs) Great. Yay. That's my point. Let's kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the other things that kind of go around this idea of addiction and some of those processes. This is going to be from a resource that we have called addictioncenter.org, and they provide some resources on addictions and whatnot. But in kind of going back to the idea of what Abraham just said, when one of the many rewarding, quote, features, unquote, of the platforms occurs, it becomes paired with that jolt of dopamine, whatever that is, associated with the activity, positive reinforcement. We've kind of talked about and touched on all those things. But basically, there is some reward for engaging in that, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So those features are kind of like candy or cocaine. I'm going to go out on a limb and say neither of us have been on cocaine. (laughs) Correct. Correct. We can strongly say that. 
And behavior conforms to those patterns that acquire more of it. So essentially, kind of like the concept of reinforcement, which we've talked about, this idea that when I contact something I like, I'm going to continue to engage in that thing, that behavior to contact that thing that I like. So the reason we like candy is because it tastes good, right? We all have a preferred candy. So we continue to engage with that because there's some reinforcing properties related to that. Licorice. Yeah. Licorice. (laughs) Depends on the licorice. Do you like black licorice? I have started experimenting with black licorice. Nobody has ever said that sentence in the in the world. <laughs> Sweet, I'm an original. <laughs> I historically hated it, and I decided as I was getting older, and old people seem to like licorice, black licorice. So maybe I would start to like black licorice, and so I started trying it more. And it still has the the sort of oily, soapy flavor that is mostly gross. But I could start to see with enough exposure and enough desperation how it could be seen as pleasurable. <laughs> which is probably true of a lot of things black licorice the candy of desperation <laughs> i mean i i prefer butterscotch i've learned that butterscotch is a thing that's in my palate now but in my opinion butterscotch has always been good but i do like yeah. the, the tagline of uh, for black licorice i really think they should consider using that the candy of desperation <laughs> are you starving to death black licorice is the answer yeah he's so bored that you're willing to try something awful have you ever liked the taste of sweet soap (laughs) so essentially what happens here kind of in this idea of there's some reinforcing property with that platform there's some kind of reinforcing property with interaction the problem starts to come when one starts to disregard those other things like interpersonal relationships they mistake something like social media relationships for real contact and real relationships. Maybe they start neglecting work, school responsibilities, physical health, their mood begins to fluctuate. And we've kind of touched on those a little bit before, but that's when it starts to become a problem is it's not that social media is a problem in itself. It's that when those behavioral patterns start to shift and change away from healthy relationships, healthy work habits, those other things that kind of maintain our homeostasis. You're exactly right. And I think that that leads to a really good segue to describe when you see those unhealthy habits develop, you might understand implicitly, but let's state explicitly, that what can happen then is you see a, a decrease in your overall mental health because you have these other unhealthy habits and they're unhealthy because they affect you both in a physically negative way, but also in a sort of mentally negative way. And so there are reports that the excessive use of social media, whatever excessive might mean, can lead to those lower self esteem, feelings of isolation feelings of sadness and essentially just increased unhappiness, which almost sounds like a double negative. It's not technically, but let's let's say increasing <laughs> sadness or less happiness. Yeah. The thing is, is that when we talk about these social media platforms, because it is so digital and we've probably all had this experience on a very small scale where it's like, I am somebody who likes to read books and have a book in my hand. I have a really hard time with digital versions of books. They don't make me happy. They don't bring me joy. I like having that tangible thing. Now, start thinking about that in the, in the frame of like a relationship, right? Like like social relationships, physical contact, like seeing people in person, like all those are very salient things that happen in your environment and they have rewarding properties within itself. Now, when you start moving into the social media platform, you start losing that physical contact. You lose that real-time interaction. And so that's a lot of what happens. The content itself on social media isn't paired with any sort of physical contact or those more intimate connections that are pretty critical to a human experience. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the fact that in the age of everyone having gone to virtual ways of hanging out, people are meeting online via video. They could just have a phone call. They could just be texting one another. 
But there's something important about being able to see the person that you're talking with, be able to hear the inflection in their voice and see the expressions on their face and be able to interact with them in that meaningful way that has people use video instead of just like sending each other texts or posting online. And all of those things are so important to how we interact with one another. There's just, there's so much that's lost in the nuance of expression. And even ideally, I think one thing that we've learned is we'd still rather be in person if possible. We've been using Zoom to record for a very long time since way before it was cool. And (laughs) that's why, yes, hipster accomplished. We're the hipsters of Zoom. The the hipsters of Zoom. Oh man, what a, that'd be an interesting band name. Hipsters of Zoom. <laughs> what, what kind of band like would just, that be? Are, those, are they just fast hipsters? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'd be <laughs> like a rapid pace funk band, I guess. Um, that's, Into it. Yeah. I'm there for it. Sweet. But anyway, we could have always just recorded where we only heard each other but didn't see each other, but we felt it was important to be able to see one another's faces as we record. And I think that a lot of people have discovered that. So there is something that is lost on social media platforms where you don't get that direct interaction. And of course, how many times has it been said of you said something and someone took it out of context and they read a tone into your message that was not there and that sparked a whole, or that you didn't intend to be there, I guess. And that sparked a whole confrontation between people who that would have never happened if they'd had that face-to-face interaction. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and another side effect of this too, that we have to look at is just whenever content is being produced on social media, for the most part, it's manufactured. Like while somebody it's controlled content, right? It's not nothing that you're going to see is going to be as authentic as having a real conversation with somebody in real time. And, you know, while sometimes this is good, you can kind of update people and, and people become proud of a loved one. They're inspired. Maybe they see something. The other part is people can become jealous or depressed because they're seeing something that is, I mean, I use this example when I talk about self-care all the time is that when you go look at like the hashtag for self-care on any sort of platform, it looks like people are on these luxurious vacations and they're doing all these things, but it's like, this is a moment in time. This is like a glimpse into the amber of human experience and it is controlled. It is shaped. It is a small snippet of what's really happening. And so we lose some of that perspective, I guess, when we start seeing those posts. It's like, oh, this is what self-care looks like. And people are influenced by that. And there's reinforcing properties that, I mean, there's just so much stuff that goes into the idea of the influence of social media, but understanding that the content itself is manufactured is really critical. Yeah. And that, that is a good point. And there is also this element of being sort of, I guess, guarded against that interaction with somebody where you don't have them in front of you. And so people react in very different ways than they would if they were actually talking to that person. So the kind of hateful messages that people would send one another, you wouldn't, you'd rarely say that to someone's face a lot of the time. Right. And a lot of the time they don't, you put that out there. You don't even think the person's going to end up seeing the message that you even sent. And so there's another podcast that I listen to called Conversations with People Who Hate Me. And on that, he specifically takes those people who have said hateful things to one another online and had them meet virtually and most of the time, or at least on a phone call, and actually talk to one another. And almost every time the person who sent the message said, I didn't actually think that you would see that. And so it's sort of their way of just I want my voice to be out here too, because that's what this platform is intended. And you don't think about the fact that there's another human being that you're interacting with because all you have is the screen. 
Right. And you don't, you don't get to see what the interaction looks like. So there's something that changes the way that we behave toward one another that can lead to those really unhealthy relationships. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, as we start looking at all this, I think one of the things that we do need to kind of touch on is this idea. I mean, we've talked about personality before, but we want to really talk about like, who's at risk you know, when we start talking about this, who's more susceptible to contacting these problematic contingencies related to social media and all that. And we're going to use the term personality traits quite a bit because that is kind of talked about within some of the discussions, but we're going to try to tie it back to some of the more grounded stuff that we we want to cover. Yeah. And honestly, I really think the way to think about this when we talk about the type of personality of someone who's likely to really fall into the social media trap of addiction level engagement is we're talking about people who are already demonstrating those patterns of behavior for the most part. That like that's what personality is essentially. Is you are already have a pattern of behavior that lends itself to a particular outcome. At least with how we're talking about what personalities are likely to I guess get stuck in in this addiction cycle if you will. Right. So, you know, when we start talking about personality traits, they can contribute to a problematic use, right? Like they can contribute to accessing these social media platforms. They can contribute to that kind of like, I guess, maybe slippery slope of problem that comes up. But usually the people that are more susceptible to this are people who are already engaging in these kinds of patterns of behavior. They just become more amplified the more that they use this. So the first example is anybody who's got like traits that are related to neuroticism or the degree to which one's experience with the world elicits anxiety and stress. So as somebody who is generally pretty neurotic, I could see how that would escalate for somebody, especially the FOMO piece. Like I got to see what's going on. I can't get rid of my social media because I'm worried that I'm going to miss something or I'm not going to get an update or I'm going to miss some news about something. And so I could see somebody who is generally considered neurotic or engaging in those types of patterns would get sucked into this really quickly. Yeah. And that was both according to the Chronicle and medical news today, referencing a study from being Hampton, essentially saying that the people who are already demonstrating the tendency, I guess, to demonstrate like anxiety, stress, that sort of thing, and have that experience that they're at an increased chance of sort of getting hooked to platforms like that, sort of as you said. And then another one they pointed out was this idea of conscientiousness or the quality of being sort of diligent or level-headed. Also sort of the idea of self-control and impulse control, that sort of thing. That actually has the reverse effect of being able to self-regulate your tendency to want to use that. So essentially it's saying here that those people who already do a lot of sort of self-regulating and have a good skill around how they control their impulses are less likely to find themselves quote unquote addicted to social media. Right. And within that, you'll hear kind of the discussion around like susceptibility too, right? Susceptibility to peer pressure, susceptibility to social pressures. And and usually somebody who is maybe more susceptible is going to experience more problems using those platforms. Speaking pretty freely, my daughter, when she first got some kind of social media, she really struggled with it because she would see friends engaging in certain behaviors on there. She would get pulled into that. And she was fairly susceptible to some of those peer pressures that were related to like 13, 14, 15 year old kids on the internet. And so after kind of having contacted some problematic contingencies related to that, she kind of stepped back and has become less susceptible to peer pressure. And that's been more helpful and actually really great for her mental health. And that's, I mean, that's an anecdote, but that is something that I've seen directly as a result of all this. No, that's great. And I I think that's sort of a, a place of optimism of Even though we are not prepared for something like this as a species because we've never had something quite like this, 
we adapt to things so quickly that I think what we're just going to see is a new way of learning and developing socially where this is a platform that's available for the youth. And it's not necessarily something to be terribly afraid of for them. And like, I also think I am so glad that this was not available when I was a teenager. No joke. I can just see myself having gone down the absolute wrong paths, having that as an outlet when I was really, really susceptible to what my friends were doing and what I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be part of the conversation. I wanted to have my voice be heard by everybody because I thought I had something to say. And like (laughs) that just would have been, I think, not good for me. And maybe, you know, maybe instead I would have actually developed good skills around dealing with that. But yeah, it's I think it's just a good point to raise that the new next generation is facing something that we don't know what it would have been like to have been raised with that. And it's hard to provide a lot of guidance because we're not coming at it from that perspective. And I think that goes back to, you know, so so many of these other, other topics that we've talked about where you've got so many you know, possibilities in place for how to interact with these platforms on different levels with different forms of communication. Like you're talking about the difference between like public posting versus private posting. You're talking about the like just all this stuff. And I think that's very difficult to navigate because you've got this issue of like, there are so many choices to run with and kind of going back to, we talked about option paralysis and kind of those terms too, but anything around that, I mean, you're talking about a wild west where there are very little limitations that somebody might come across yeah it's it's territory that's only beginning to be explored in terms of sort of the parameters of what to expect and how best to use it that's a yeah you said it well i think (laughs) calling it the wild west is as a a metaphor that probably resonates pretty well with a lot of people so real quick there was this this review on social media addiction by cuss and griffiths and essentially they pointed out that it is really difficult to talk about this personality thing because there is a tendency to use self-report for personality descriptions and how reliable is that going to be, you know? (laughs) Right. And so, you know, they do argue that a more structured clinical interview by a professional would probably be better at really accurately detecting specific links between those behavior patterns, also known as personality traits and the tendency to be addicted. And then there's been more. If we want to do just a quick summary, there was another study by Marengo, Paletti, and Satani in 2019. If you just want to describe what they found with personality and social media addiction. Yeah, basically kind of to touch on the idea of personality, they found that neuroticism was tied and linked pretty closely to social media addiction where extroversion was inversely related. But essentially what they found was both are tied to making more status updates perhaps due to the need for self-preservation, self-expression fulfilled by social media. So you'll kind of see that those links that we talked about before are correlated with this social media addiction that we're talking about. I mean, I think there's this common theme throughout a lot of the things that we've discussed that what happens in this space is this positive feedback loop where more use begets more use. And that the intrinsic reward system built into these platforms fosters a high level of engagement on that platform, which results in a high level of reward, which results in a higher level of engagement. And you just get this snowball effect of using those. And again, this isn't for everyone, but for those people who already have a tendency to allow themselves to be snowballed by effects like this. Or they've never had to practice regulating themselves in spaces like this. You can see it's easy to get in that cycle. And I I think that's just 
that'll end up probably being one of the take homes here is that cycle thing that that feedback loop is one of the, the critical elements of what you might describe or think of as social media addiction. Yeah, I mean, specifically, this article talks about how extroversion had a positive correlation with positive feedback. So basically, the more you're out there, the more likes come in, and it just does that snowball thing. But when they do talk about this, the neuroticism and extroversion components found that there was a higher frequency of status updates, and specifically when there was positive feedback related. So, you know, as we start talking about this and you start looking at that, you've got somebody who, I'm extroverted, I'm going to say something, I'm going to get some interactions with it. I'm going to continue to post stuff. I'm going to continue to get interactions with it. All I can think of right now is the singer of that band trapped right now has gone on this, like this ridiculous rabbit hole of like fighting with people on Twitter. And he's fighting with like people like ice T and like these metal bands and stuff and just calling people. It's just really bizarre to watch, but there is a lot of interaction with those posts because the guy is saying some pretty incendiary things. Yeah. Weird. It's very strange. I didn't realize that, that, band was still around oh they're still around it's a whole thing i might change my recommendation to just go read the drama related to it but you know the thing is is like as you start talking about this vicious cycle of, of likes and interactions and kind of the, the back and forth you develop a heightened tolerance so whereas 10 likes might have been sufficient before it's no longer working right it's like chasing the dragon 100 likes is the next one 200 i mean and like really if you want to use it compared to like real drug terms that's exactly what it is you know 10 likes doesn't work anymore so i need a higher dose of likes and it that's where it becomes more of a problem and you start seeing people do more outlandish things or saying more outlandish things or kanye west is a perfect example of this like he goes away (laughs) for a little bit then then he shows up and he says something really incendiary like hey things are better now than they were and you're kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. And he gets all this interaction with this one post that he makes. And it just continues. It gets bad for some people. I could see that with myself when I was all excited when we were about to reach 100 followers on Spotify. And I was so excited about that. And then I was like, now I need 110. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we're, way, we're way beyond that. But <laughs> I actually legitimately was like watching those numbers be like, we're to break a hundred soon. We're to break a hundred soon. And yeah, now I just need more. (laughs) So one of the things let's, let's go and wrap up the study real quick. They did point out in the study that there are specific signs to look for, for social media addiction. And that was a sense of loss or anxiety when you are without access to that platform. So when you don't have your phone or computer, or maybe for whatever reason, you just don't have access to the internet that you are reliant on the feedback that you get from those online platforms in order to have a high level of self-esteem. You engage in that vitriolic, angry, trapped singer (laughs) behavior (laughs) online and therefore place too much importance on social media. And you'll see too, people lose sleep. They are emotionally distraught. They obsessively check. I mean, they're use, and we've kind of already covered this, but it's basically confirming what we talked about in the first episode, which is all these things that are these obsessive, repetitive behaviors are occurring and becoming more and more intense as you go. So basically, this study came out last year that really kind of confirms what we're talking about. Even with the bias there, it still talks about those same indicators of addiction. We also found this this interesting fellow who seems to be an expert in addiction. Shane, you found a lot about him. His name is Dr. Mark D. Griffith. And so what's his deal? He's got like 18 awards, like national awards for his research. He's published like 700 articles that are that are peer reviewed, five books, 150 chapters. I mean, the guy's done. I can't speak to the 
maybe integrity of his work because I didn't get to go into all that or like maybe the rigor of his work, but he has done a lot of work in this and he seems to be kind of like the de facto expert when it comes to gaming addictions, working addictions. And he also kind of works with like sex addiction too. So he could be like a Dr. Oz where he's just, you know, famous for being famous, but he could be a legitimate guy. I'm leaning more towards legitimate guy than Dr. Oz. Like it seems like kind of the, the profiles that I have read seem like that, but I'm not going to die on the hill just yet. All right. Fair enough. So if he has a reality TV show, then I think all credibility goes out the window. But other, otherwise, <laughs> we'll, we'll assume for now that he's a legit guy. Yeah, you hear us, Dr. Phil? <laughs> also, I think, as you pointed out, he does actually have quite a few credentials that seem to suggest that he's legit. So he pointed out that for a small minority of individuals, social media use is correlated with some other psychological mental health problems, of we, as we have mentioned, such as anxiety, depression, loneliness, interestingly, ADHD. And then he also said that social media use specifically can be correlated with addiction. And I'm thinking he meant addiction of various kinds. What he kind of talks about too is specifically this idea of like ongoing usage or constant usage is really closely intertwined with this rise in the use of mobile culture or kind of like this idea of mobile culture where we are basically all walking around with supercomputers in our pockets. I mean, cause think about this for a second. When we were younger, a podcast was simply a radio show. It was a talk show. Yeah. All right. That came on at a specific time and you could only listen to it when it was on. Right. And you had to turn on the radio. Now you can listen to hundreds of thousands of podcasts from your pocket whenever you want. And so, you know, you're starting to see this kind of culture, this mobile culture where things are more accessible more quickly. People are fearing missing out. We're just flooded with information. And so the usage of social media is kind of like he does talk about increasing with this rise in this mobile culture that we're living in. He raised the question, and also this was described by Forbes, of who's sort of responsible here. And Dr. Griffiths here suggests that governments and organizations should actually take action and try and limit or even ban the use of social media in certain contexts. Of course, driving, low-hanging fruit here, this is pretty universally accepted in terms of where to ban the use of engagement with a social media platform. And of course, many schools, employers, and colleges have placed some amount of restriction or bans on the use of social media. Some of them have tried to create their own versions of social media that are relevant to only what they're doing. Apparently, some restaurants offer discounts for diners who refrain from using their phones throughout their meal, which I think is actually very clever. I always thought that one of the smartest things that companies did was when some of the insurance carriers started offering incentives for doing like having your phone off while you drive or have it in like drive mode and that was paired to some thing in your car where they could actually verify that i don't know how well that actually worked because i think that one the outcome was pretty small the output from that and two i think it was very difficult to regulate so people maybe found too many loopholes in that system. Yeah. But I really like the idea of if we're going to try and regulate this punishment is just not going to be that effective because people are, you're not getting at the motivation to use the thing. And so the only way to really combat it is to either address the motivation, which good luck, <laughs> right. Or to try and incentivize some kind of alternative. And so I do like the idea of offering like a discount or something. Yeah, I mean, one of the best meals I've had recently was in Miami, 
right when APBS got canceled, went out with some colleagues and we went to a restaurant and they had in the middle of the table, like, just put your phone here. Don't touch it. First person that touches it has to pay for their dinner, Ha! pay for everybody's dinner, like kind of one of these things. But it was really cool. We got to sit and talk and chat and I wasn't even stressed about it. I was like, cool, I can put my phone up. And we did. And it was great. I do feel like we've gotten as a culture too used to talking to people who are sort of half listening while they use their phone. And I know I'm guilty of this, absolutely, where someone talks to me and I'm like, oh, cool, this is an opportunity for me to use my phone. And uh, I'm not really on social media, has been raised many times on this podcast, but I do use my phone for a lot of things. And I do use my phone for a lot of things that involve other communication, like emails, texts. We use Slack for a lot of communication. So I'll be looking on that. I'm on a Discord server, which is kind of social media-like. That's for you know other podcasts that I support and listen to. And so, and including ours. So, hey, if you want to join our Discord server, <laughs> pretty easy, Aha! pretty easy way to do it. Just roped it all in. Anyway, I think that we have gotten very used to this as a culture where we just sort of accept that people will sort of half pay attention to us and we're going to have to repeat ourselves or just know that we go unheard. And I think that you're right that it, we would benefit from when we're going to be face to face, we put our phones down and we talk. Yeah. So, in reference to, Abraham talking about the government being responsible and all that fun stuff. Forbes kind of digs into this idea of responsibility for addiction a little bit. Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff says that social media companies should be regulated the same way cigarette companies are to put, quote, the safety of consumers before the financial gains, which I like, end quote, which I like that sentiment. I like that idea of safety is more important than money. Yeah. I mean, sometimes people just say things like that, but you know, if that's the, actually the value that is being pursued, then that's great. They definitely are in support of that. Another thing to consider is that, as pointed out by Forbes, the people who develop and run and moderate Facebook, these are not psychological professionals. They are essentially PR people and marketers, and yet they are in charge of and responsible for a lot of the American and global sort of cultural and psyche that have developed around this. And they don't necessarily bring a level of intentionality or scientific rigor to the process. What they have done is figured out what works, not why or how, but just what does work and how to exploit it as much as possible. And I don't think that means they're evil. And I'm not suggesting that they are evil. What I'm suggesting is they have found an effective way of doing their job that maybe has had some adverse outcomes. And we are putting a lot in the hands of people who are not professionals. Right. It's like a few people that kind of learned a little bit about how behavior shaped up. And now here we are where all of us are buying triple mint gum. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I was going to uh, use a, a much darker reference, which was back in, I think it was around maybe the 60s or 70s. I'm forgetting the decade now where, yes, exactly it happened is following some of the revolution around behaviorism we found some ways to help change people's behavior and before there was a lot of ethics and regulation around use of those technologies there were workshops where you could go in spend a day learn a couple of tricks and then people would go out and start entire hospitals with vulnerable populations yep. that ended up being exploited and horribly mistreated because they understood a way to get an effective outcome that was not a responsible or ethical way to do it. I mean, that's a whole thing. We could probably do a whole podcast around that too. So anyway, people know a little bit. They do a lot of damage intentionally and unintentionally. Yeah, that saying that's like, I know just enough to be dangerous sort of thing. Yeah, that's kind of what happens. And so 
to kind of give a little bit of scale as far as like social media goes and like how many people are directly impacted by, let's say, this marketing and like this, like kind of all this stuff that gets put out, right? Currently, there are over 2 billion Facebook users worldwide. About 500 million tweets are sent out daily on Twitter. 95 million images, roughly, are uploaded to Instagram daily. And on YouTube, over 400 hours of video are uploaded per minute. That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, we don't really have a lot to compare to, like compare that to, but that's just in itself are just gargantuan numbers that describe the scale of what we're talking about and how many people are potentially impacted by these platforms and the amount of content and are maybe possibly susceptible to social media addiction. Yeah, that's, oh man. I mean, I was just thinking, sorry, this is a little bit off topic, but I was just thinking about, as I said, like knowing just enough to be dangerous. I think that would describe almost everybody who drives a car. (laughs) (laughs) They know just enough to be dangerous. Right. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I think about like when I started driving, they should not have given me a license. (laughs) I ran over my best friend the first day I had my license. Wow. He's alive. He's okay. Okay. There's a joke I think on Parks and Rec where I said like they had to take out third of his body, the middle third. (laughs) 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 Going back to those numbers you mentioned, it's difficult to compare those to anything. Those numbers could be relatively large or small without some kind of comparison. So let's think of it this way. If you take the 262 million users and you divide that by the 500 million tweets, essentially that is 0.5 tweets per day. And that does not account for the people who use it a lot or don't use it at all. Right. Essentially you have the people who on average are posting one basically every other day And then there are people who are on the extreme ends of that posting rarely. And the people who are posting hundreds of times per day. Yes. Like elected officials. Yeah. Like elected officials who are attempting to liberate states, apparently. Oh, no. Cross territory (laughs) into politics. All right. How do we treat this problem? So the question comes, you know, as you start kind of like maybe conceptualizing this is whether or not this is a disease or not, or maybe just an evolution in social behavior or, you know, something along those lines. So we don't really have an answer to that question because it's still a fairly new technology. It's still fairly new in the scope of human evolution. So we don't really have a lot. What we have to kind of start looking at right now is this idea of what is the individual impact on the person using it. Now, The Guardian talks about attempting to deal with social media and how it should be built around living with it rather than abandoning, restricting, or censoring it. So when we start talking about this as a conceptual piece, the idea of social media being present in our lives may be something that's just, it's there, but it's managed, or we manage it on some level. And that's and that's a lot of kind of the discussion that we'll see here. I do want to say, I realized when I said, how do we treat this problem? This problem could have referred to a lot of things because I just talked about politics and politicians using social media and us (laughs) talking about politics and what I was talking about, of course, was social media addiction. Now, I do want to just jump right on what you were saying about how whether or not we abandon it or we try and live with it. And I think a good metaphor or maybe an analogy is a more appropriate word to use here is looking back at. This type of approach was very much in what was being discussed when the internet first came about of people saying like, this is going to lead to all these problems. We should just get rid of it. I mean, (laughs) no, (laughs) that's just not going to happen. Right. So it makes a lot more sense to figure out how do we navigate these waters rather than how do we get out of this ocean that we're in? Because the ocean is too vast. 
This same argument was made by Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla when they were fighting over the type of electricity to use. People were like, don't use electricity, you'll die. Nice. Yes, exactly. <laughs> also, if you want a really fun, lear- like a fun little romp into history, look at the beef between Edison and Tesla. It is so good. And history is fraught with these examples of when really large societal changes occur. There are people who are fighting against it saying we need to go back and unfortunately these are these are sort of pandora's box type problems which is to say once it's open you don't get to put it back in the box sometimes things will just fizzle out and go away like that happens too but you are not going to start a revolution to like end something like social media not with the kind of momentum it has instead what will happen is it's gonna morph into something else or it'll continue on the way it's going on. It'll just kind of will evolve with it or something else. But really, it makes the most sense to take a level-headed, data-driven, science-based approach to what is the best way to move forward with these tools as we exist with them. And that is why the sham wow is not a big deal anymore. <laughs> sham wow. <laughs> <laughs> so NBC News talks about this a little bit. So many jobs now require like some kind of social media presence. So you'll see that where maybe there's an online profile, maybe there's some kind of interaction, whether you're talking about marketing or you're a celebrity. And this can result in some kind of depression from just ongoing repeated exposure, constant interaction with these platforms. And some people do suffer from this. I mean, you'll talk, I, I watch interviews sometimes with celebrities and they won't have social media because of the amount of criticism that comes to their pages. So you'll see this as like, Maybe this is something that is ever present, but some people are opting not to have it. Right. And so that that gets to this idea of what what do we do about this? And for those people who are experiencing this as sort of an addiction. And the point is, we're not going to be able to just reverse it. So it makes more sense to teach a just better way of approaching these things. And honestly, like this, there's some parallels here with something like diet and exercise. Like you don't need to go from being a slovenly lump on a log to running a marathon in a month. But if you do better at managing your cal- your caloric intake and the type of nutrition that you get, as well as doing some amount of regular exercise, like that goes a really long way. And so I think that's maybe a better way to approach this. And I don't particularly like the term everything in moderation. I think that is very misleading, but this is something that is so common that it makes sense to moderate it. That being said, there are people that I know that are celebrities. There are people that I know personally who decided social media was not serving their life in a positive way, and they did abandon it completely, and they seem to be doing okay. I never really adopted it myself. Like I was on MySpace for a minute when that was a thing, but (laughs) I can't really speak to the experience of trying to get rid of a system that I was used to using in that way. But there are people who go on living perfectly productive lives without it. It's just, it is a supplement, not a staple. Yeah. And so as you start kind of identifying those, maybe those aspects of what to change or how to treat it or whatever you want to look at. You have to start asking questions along the lines of how much time is spent on social media? Is the time that's spent on social media reflecting your values? Is it improving yourself anyway? Can you commit to any changes? And this is, I think, a great quote is if you think of every megabyte as a bite of food, what percentage of what I consumed online today was empty calories? And I like that idea of of thinking of it as like consumption because essentially you're consuming content, you're consuming information, you're consumers of that platform. 
And so how much of it is this kind of mindless or not really useful for you? That also, I think, immediately prescribes where you can start cutting away the dead weight of things that are completely unnecessary. Thinking back to that skit on The Office where Michael is trying to regulate his finances and <laughs> and the, <laughs> the, the financial guy on there, his name is Oscar, he said, this bar is how much you spend on essential items. This bar is how much you spend on inessential items. And this scary giant bar is how much you spend on things that nobody ever needs. <laughs> and so if you can identify those pieces of social media that are like, this is a something that nobody ever needs type thing, that's low hanging fruit to say, let's, let's cut down on that first, because probably that's also where the fewest amount of the rewards are. You know, they come at the most interspersed intervals and it's the least useful. So that's the kind of stuff that you find yourself doing when you literally have nothing else to do. You're like, I've done my posts. I've liked my friend's photos. I'm up to date on the news. Now I guess I'm going to scroll, scroll through my feed and look for pictures of cats and bulls. And as entertaining as that might be, that might be a place where it's like, maybe you just do that less often. Or just read a book instead. Yes. I don't know. I'm a big proponent for reading books, apparently. Oh, yeah. Books are the best. Yeah. Books are the best. So, you know, kind of what Abraham was saying, it's fine in moderation like drinking alcohol, eating sweets. It's all that part is fine in moderation. We can kind of navigate that. But computerworld.com talks about the idea of how to kick the habit. And one suggestion they make is this idea of visiting once per day or maybe using some kind of app to track your usage. Apple systems, if you have an Apple phone or anything like that, like an iPhone, it will give you the amount of screen time that you use per day. And it's pretty interesting. Like when you look at the why we do what we do crew and we compare our data, it's really interesting to see how different our data would look, especially Ryan's not here, so I will let him defend himself later. But he talks about <laughs> his screen time sometimes, and you're kind of like, uh, like when do you do you eat? Yeah, or do you sleep? Or you know, it's it's kind of it's interesting. But that's part of what his role is. Yeah, he's on a paradoxical 27 hours per day on his screen. I don't know. I don't know how he does it. It's it seems like it's impossible, but <laughs> it's it's bizarre. If he's not here to defend himself, then I can say whatever I want. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> uh, oh man anyway take that ryan <laughs> the addictioncenter.org website they actually make some very sound recommendations that are relevant to any time that you are trying to reduce or change a habit like this and if you think about a lot of these habits we have a routine of cues and we've talked about things like that on this podcast before those sort of reminders and those those habits that we have if you try and eliminate some of those cues, things like whether or not you get specific notifications, whether that notification is accompanied by a sound, and like noticing times when you're likely to, to go on social media. So for example, people probably take five times more bathroom breaks now than they used to, which is contributing to our toilet paper shortage people. <laughs> and they don't necessarily need to, but it's like that's a sort of an escape to get on your phone. Maybe deliberately make the effort to just not bring the phone into the bathroom with you, you know, and then you're just less likely to engage with it that much. Or maybe set certain parameters for yourself in terms of you will only check it once per hour, or you will have certain times of the day that are designated no screen time, or like put your device, phone, laptop, tablet, whatever somewhere away from you when you're doing specific things like hanging out with your family or making dinner or something like that. 
on a more systemic level or just kind of like a conceptual level too, Psychology Today talks about this idea of maybe social media companies that are producing these platforms and kind of managing it. They could use all the data they collect because when you sign that agreement, they collect all kinds of data about you. They could talk about and determine who operates excessively and then offer strategies to limit use. They could talk about that a little bit. They have the data there as far as usage. It's just a matter of applying some of those controls a little bit. And if all else fails, of course, you have marijuana or CBT. <laughs> ah cbt i got my cbt card just kidding that was a joke on cbd but anyway the, the cognitive behavior therapy was what that was supposed to be <laughs> i'm I, I think things like that are funny i don't know but yeah. that is often the go-to treatment for things like this and honestly a lot of mental health issues important to point out there really aren't however a lot of published studies that have examined effective treatment packages inside of this with respect to internet and social media addictions specifically. So although I think that that is a relatively general approach to mental health that has some evidence to support it, how well it relates to this particular problem just hasn't been investigated very thoroughly. And so one thing they do recommend, and this is kind of a, a final point within that, is this idea of maybe considering some similarities that you might see with social media addiction to porn addiction, because the format's kind of the same, the process is kind of the same, the, the outcomes are a little bit different, but at least there are closer parallels to that than maybe, say, gambling or maybe some kind of like drug addiction. Yeah, it's a good point. And I was thinking gambling, but you are right that there there are closer parallels to this where there's not that really clear financial external reward. I mean, I guess there's kind of external reward to watching yeah. porn potentially, but not yeah. the I think the financial one is just it's such a powerful motivator and it's so generalized and generalizable that it does sort of set itself aside from things that are like most people don't get direct payment for their engagement with the social media. But right. All right. I think we have beaten this topic to death. Do you have anything else on that? Nope. I think we can do take points now. Okay. One of the ones I think, as I mentioned earlier, is a really good take home point here is that a lot of what happens inside of this social media addiction, and I want to remind everyone, this is not a formal disorder or diagnosis. This is a relatively new thing because it hasn't been around for very long. And it has become just wildly available because there is essentially unrestricted access to it as long as you have a device that can connect to the internet. And it has been very thoroughly studied. And what we really see, and what my main point here as a big take home, is this feedback loop thing, this positive feedback loop of what we're seeing, what looks like social media addiction, and whether or not that's problematic for you has to do with this cycle of getting involved in these habits that become extremely pervasive, I guess, and then they, to the detriment of other valuable and important things in life. Yeah. And so to kind of piggyback on that, the idea of social media addiction or even becoming addicted to social media is still fairly subjective, but it does follow those patterns or like a similar paradigm that you might see to conventional addiction criteria. So you can see that it's likened, you see behavioral changes, you see new patterns of behavior emerge. And the main criteria I think that they really kind of lean heavily on is this idea of, is it affecting your work? Is it affecting your relationships? Are you having withdrawal symptoms? And, and those things do occur in relation to social media withdrawal. But again, it's still not that classified specific disorder like you'll see with some of these other ones. Now, fortunately, as we described in some of the treatment, for some people, there are some relatively simple changes that can make a huge impact for them. And that might be systematically decreasing the amount of time spent using social media or even just arranging your 
immediate surroundings such that you have less access to it, at least during certain times, or have parameters around when you have it be available to yourself. So there are ways of dealing with this that might be really easy things for people to take on. And for those people for whom that doesn't work, then you might want to seek professional help. Agreed. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Perfect. All right. Real quick, let's say thank you to Alan Kinsella for his research on this episode. Thank you to Justin Greenhouse for all of his audio producing and engineering and wonderful work. And thanks to Amber Grote for her help with all of our social media and PR stuff, if you will. And of course, thanks to the team, everybody who helps with this. Yes. Let's do some recommendations. Yes. I love it. Recommendations. I just found this somewhat recently, and I think probably most people know about it because it seems to be wildly popular. But if you haven't checked this out yet, I highly recommend that you go to YouTube and you look up some good news. This is a little show that John Krasinski is doing that's sort of a news show that is really oriented around being really positive and fun and happy. And it's just so delightful. And it's been so much fun to watch, and I absolutely love it. So if you haven't been watching these or check these out, I haven't seen the most recent one that came out, but these have just been absolutely awesome and completely make my day. So I think that other people might find value there too. Yeah, they are really wonderful. I really dig it. I really dig it. So that's a good recommendation. So my recommendation is a classic. If you have not read this book, I suggest checking it out. It's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I have lately been on this bent where I'm going back and reading some classics. Like I have pretty recently read The Portrait of Dorian Gray. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is a fun one. Yeah. But I'm halfway through Frankenstein and I love the way it's written. It's written as like a retrospective, like, hey, I messed up. Yeah. Here's my story. Mia culpa. And I love it. Right now, I'm at my favorite spot is, uh, and this just made me laugh and it brought me such joy, but it's still very interesting, was uh, Victor Frankenstein reanimates the corpse and then just leaves his house. <laughs> He freaks out and he just leaves and I'm going, well, what about the monster? And uh, he's like, I'm going to go on a jaunt at the university with my friend. So I'm excited. I really do dig it. I'm having a lot of fun with it. So I do recommend it because it is a, it's a classic of it's it's written really, really well. It's been a while, but I do think that that is probably in my top 10 favorite books of all time. Yeah, it's up there with like Count of Monte Cristo and Around the World in 80 Days. So good. Yeah. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Very good books. I love it. All right, cool. Thank you so much for recording with me today, Shane. Thank you so much for listening. If you have anything to add to our discussion on social media addiction, if you treat social media addiction or you suffer from social media addiction or you are social media, reach out to us. Let us know. We'd love to share your story on here. You can find out more about this in any of our other episodes at www.wwdpodcast.com. That last part there with all the initials is also our handle at all the social media things. And you can reach us at info at www.podcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. So thank you so much. This is Abraham. This is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. 
There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.